My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money from one market in San Francisco, our West Coast home. And welcome to Kramerica on this day. The show's 13th anniversary. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you, as always. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is it even worth trying to invest based on what comes out of this White House? You know I think that's a poor strategy. There's much more to this market than trying to fathom President Trump. But on a day where the Dow plunged 249 points, S&P lost 0.57%, and Nasdaq declined just 0.19%. Well, maybe we've just been given a gift. I'm talking about the news that Larry Kudlow is going to be the president's top economic advisor. Because Kudlow is all about bigger corporate profits, which translates directly into higher stock prices. You may say, so what? Trump didn't listen to Gary Cohn. Why is he going to listen to this fellow Kudlow? Well, then let me explain. Today is indeed the 13th anniversary of Mad Money. But before the show, I worked with Larry for four years on a show called Kudlow and Kramer on CNBC. He's a persuasive man. And I have some insights I want to share with you about what his getting the job means for stocks. First, let me distill Larry's philosophy into one word. Growth. Larry's the most pro-growth person I've ever met. In our time together, we didn't see eye to eye on much. But the glue what held the show together was our affinity for growth. Because in economic terms, growth is a panacea. Kind of fixes everything. The nature of the show was pretty simple. People with two differing views, often using gas as a foil to make our points. It often got heated. But Larry knew I favored higher stock prices. And his stand on growth would get us there. So to my first point, growth is true north for this fine but forceful gentleman. And as long as the president takes him seriously about what's true north, that is good for the stock market. Second, Larry is a fantastic speaker. He's a legendarily congenial and articulate statesman. My mother always said comparisons are odious. And as much as Larry's predecessor, Gary Cohn, late of Goldman Sachs, is my friend, the truth is that Larry will be more at home with the media than he than Gary ever could be. That matters tremendously when you have a president who likes to take his cues from cable news, or at least the people on cable whom he agrees with. Hey, I'm not complaining. As Larry always said before he landed a roundhouse, with all due respect, Jimmy, and he meant it. He respected the other side. It's a quality this president actually needs pretty badly. Again, if Trump listens to Larry, that may mean there will be fewer shocks to the market that can cause a real hiccup. I think Larry will be an eloquent defender of this president's agenda. He'll flesh out the tweets that tend to be Trump's own worst enemies. No, he won't be much help on Aaron tweets about Saturday Night Live. Ah, But he'll be a heck of a lot more empirical and rigorous about what the president's policies have done for business. But, and there is always a but here, Larry does not necessarily jive with the president on key issues, or at least he didn't in the past. Certainly when he worked with me. While he was an early supporter of President Trump, again, because uh, they share the notion of unfettered growth, the fact is that Larry's one of the most pro-free trade economists I have ever met. And that's saying something, because nearly every economist is pro-free trade. He hates tariffs. He'd rather subsidize American industries that are being attacked by our trading partners, like we do with agriculture, than erect barriers that could raise the cost of goods for our citizens. That's not the president's stand. Not at all. 
Much like the Supreme Court stance on pornography, the president knows predatory practices when he sees them. When I used to regularly interview Trump before he ever ran for office, he'd often bring up how the Chinese were our financial enemy and how they don't play fair. So it wasn't really a, a surprise when President Trump slapped tariffs on steel and aluminum to protect them from China, which subsidizes its domestic production to create jobs for its own people while hurting those industries here in America. They are rapacious capitalists, those communists. In the last few months, though, Larry has softened his stance on the issue. He's begun to speak of the need for fair trade with China, which is code for using tariffs to teach the Chinese to play by the rules. I think that was integral to his getting the job. Don't get me wrong. In a perfect world, we'd subsidize industries that are facing unfair competition like Larry wants. But we don't live in that world. Congress would never authorize subsidies. Whereas the president, well, he can impose these tariffs unilaterally, which means that they're the only tool we have that can protect these steel mills. Like those are my favorite new core that create whole business ecosystems in the towns where they're located. Subsidies can't do that. More importantly, I know Larry can compromise. I saw it firsthand in the many years we worked together, especially when he championed tax relief on dividends in order to increase stock ownership for regular Americans. He wouldn't have gotten this job if he couldn't agree with the president that we need to protect the companies that pay those dividends from China's endless subsidizing of state-owned businesses, especially their steel mills. But if Larry's so great for stocks, why, why, that did, why didn't stocks rally today on the news uh, the way they got clobbered when Gary Cohn resigned? Well, well, first, I mean, it's downright silly to think that the stock market as a whole would rally for Larry. I mean, but you know what? The stocks that were getting hammered the worst, the stocks of tech companies that do a ton of business in China, they did halt their declines. And in many cases, they started rebounding. I think that's huge coming just a day after the president shot down a merger between Broadcom and Qualcomm and talked about slapping an extra $60 billion in tariffs on the Chinese. But the non-Chinese tech stocks, the ones that don't do any direct business with the People's Republic, Alphabet, Netflix, Amazon, they went for a real rop on the news of the appointment. That said, two stocks people regard as ultimate China place, Apple and Boeing, still did get slammed. But Kaibon Rumor, a very respected analyst at Cowan, whom I have known for years, did say this morning that Boeing might have a weaker than expected quarter. You know what? I think that had a lot more to do with the decline in that stock than possible Chinese retaliation for Trump's tariffs, even though that wasn't reported today. As for Apple, will you give me a break? Apple had an all-time high yesterday, and every stock deserves a breather. So here's where I come out. Until these tariffs, the general consensus was that Trump's administration was as pro-business as it could get. That reputation has been frayed now that the president's put up his dukes against China, and it's hurt the stock market. But the bottom line, I think my great friend and old partner, Larry Kudlow, will argue forcefully on the inside for whatever is the most pro-growth position imaginable. But in the end, he'll take the president's views and present them, no matter how harsh, in a velvet fist with all due respect, that gets the point across even to both sides of the aisle. And more importantly, in those these days of uber polarization, both sides of the media. Let's take calls. Let's go to Marsha in New York. Marsha. Hi, Mr. Kramer. I thank you for everything you teach us. Thank you. I'm calling about a company called Centene. I bought it at 105 in the beginning of January, and it's never reached that price again. I love the motto of that company. Everyone deserves access to quality health care. I know that the health care stocks have been going down, and I'm wondering if I should keep this. 
I would buy more. This is Michael Nydorf. He is the guy who is the survivor. They do well under any regime because they know how to make money and also deliver health care. Centene CMC is one of my favorites. I bless it for hire. Let's go to Colby in Texas. Colby. Hello, Jim. Colby. Col- uh, hey, how you doing, buddy? My lucky, I'm wearing my lucky gecko today in honor of the 13th anniversary of your show. Allowed booyah shout out from Alito. Absolutely, and thank you for that. I'm calling today about Pilgrim's Pride Chicken. What is your opinion on the lawsuit they're involved in and the idea that chicken will be the dominant protein by 2020? The lawsuit's foul. Couldn't lose. I had to do that. Come on. All right, here's the problem. I don't really care for the food stocks. The one that I'm recommending is the most beaten down one, which is General Mills. Why? Because they've moved natural and organic for pet food. So I say stay the course, General Mills. Not a fan. Pilgrim's Pride. I don't care that it's cheap. Can we uh, go to SIP? Oh, SIP in New York. SIP. Jim Booyah from New York City. How are you tonight? Well, quite frankly, I'm missing New York City just a tad. My wife's out here, so it's not bad, but she's going home tonight. We miss you here. It's okay. First off, I want to say congratulations to you and the Eagles. Welcome to the club as a New York Giants fan for beating the Patriots. Welcome. Well, you know, I think we took that away from the Giants, who were the only ones that did it. But all right, friends who are Giant fans, thank you for all the kind comments. You guys have been just amazing. All right, how can we go to work? Anyway, I want to talk about my favorite company, perhaps, in the entire world. I'm talking about the Kaizen Lifestyle, Danaher Corporation. I picked up the stock around 96 a couple weeks ago, and the story with them is amazing. They beat earnings. They raised guidance two times. And last Friday, they bought out a company called IDT, a private company, which would be immediately accretive, in my estimation, about $0.07. Cents. My question is, with these guys trading cheapest in the sector, why isn't that all the analyst price targets at 110 to 115? Well, first of all, it's because you know more than the analysts. This is the kind of viewers we have. That exposition on Dan is anything I've been better than the stuff I've been telling club members because we order for ActionAlertsPlus.com. I think it goes much higher. That pre-announcement was unheralded, and I think you're in good hands. All right, Cudlow in the White House is good for growth, which is therefore good for stocks. Cuddling in the White House also means less polarizing presentation of Trump's views. Okay, mad money tonight. PayPal added a verb to the English language, as in, just Venmo me, will ya? Will this innovator of, of a cashless society keep capitalizing our digital dependence? Then, with many technology stocks immune from the trade war worries, I'm on eyeing one potential play in the space that could be worth circling the wagons around, and I'll reveal the name just then. And a San Francisco startup with a new CEO who's trying to shake up the world of banking, and I think they're pulling it off. Find out why SoFi thinks setting you up with a significant other could lead to a revolution in finance. And stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. ugly day. You know what stock surged higher? Stock of PayPal, the online payment play, with a stock that's been kind of a roller coaster of late until today. 
company reported a terrific quarter at the end of January, but then its stock got slammed after eBay, its former parent, announced it would start using a new payment preferred processor in 2020. Since the market-wide lows over a month ago, this thing, though, has been rebounding like crazy, as it should, because it's a fabulous long-term story, but don't take it from me. Yesterday, we sat down with Dan Schulman, the president and CEO of PayPal, to get the full story. Take a look. Dan. The ecosystem, every time I see you, has grown and grown exponentially. Where are we since, say, a year ago? So today we've got 227 million subscribers on PayPal. That's up almost 30 million net new actives from a year ago. The incredible thing is in the fourth quarter, we put on 8.6 million net new actives. That's a record uh, since I've been here, maybe a record of all time, up almost 60%. And really what's driving all of this, Jim, is the digitization of cash right now. The entire financial systems ecosystem is moving more rapidly than ever before away from cash and towards digital payments because of the explosion of mobile phones. Well, now, there's been a whole uh, currencies that have been skipped. There was cash, then there was check, and there was credit card, and then there's PayPal. People have skipped over whole things that we used to work our way up the food chain. Yeah. I mean, if you look at markets like China or India, India really going through demonetization right now, Really, they really never had point-of-sale terminals, credit card, and what they're trying to do now is do everything through digital. Because when you go through digital, it's a more efficient system. There aren't middlemen in between to take a part of the transaction There's less corruption and graft that can go on. And so for government benefits, that kind of thing, there's much less leakage if it can go directly from the government right into a digital wallet of the consumer. And so you're seeing leapfrogs over what were a credit card infrastructure or checking. Baidu partnership, same? Baidu partnership that we have uh, today is basically taking that Chinese consumer and allowing through the PayPal network allowing them access to merchants around the world. It's really the opposite of what we're doing with Alibaba. Right now, we have a big relationship with AliExpress and Alibaba where we're allowing PayPal consumers outside of China to shop on Chinese merchants. And I think that's the power of a two-sided network and an open platform. You're able to do ecosystem partnerships that you never could have imagined years ago. Well, let's talk about it, because within the context of where... Uh, we used to think of eBay, PayPal. How much was domestic in some Europe then versus how much is the world now? Yeah. So I think most people still think of PayPal as predominantly North American. And that's focused. why I wanted to bring it up because that's a mis- that's a, that is just a mistake. That right? is a mistake. About 65% of our consumers are outside of North America. Just over 50% of our revenues are outside of North America. And that's really important because every region of the world is now experiencing quite a bit of growth, especially Asia-Pacific region in digital payments is exploding. And so we really have an ecosystem that crosses over the world, and that allows us to do some really interesting things. For instance, in North America, you probably know this, but only 5% of small businesses export internationally, 80% of small businesses on PayPal in the U.S. export internationally. And so having a platform 
that's open, that's trusted, where with guaranteed transactions opens up the world to merchants, small business merchants, and to consumers. And that's a tremendous benefit for everybody. You know, look, the narrative has been captured to some degree about what happened with eBay, of which, I, frankly, what year was going to happen was in doubt, but it was going to happen. Uh, and I think lost in that is how many new customers you're going to get that you couldn't approach because of that agreement and the, the speed of growth of those new customers versus the speed of growth for the unbranded eBay, which was frankly quite small. Yeah. So we had a, have a long-term relationship with eBay. And Devin Wenig and I, the eBay CEO, had lunch last week. And we talked about the reaction that we saw. And both of us were like, wow, what an overreaction. Because our two companies are going to have a relationship that, frankly, it wouldn't surprise me, a decade from now, that we're still incredibly important partners to each other. But the important thing, and you just mentioned this, is this was a well-known outcome. Devin and I actually worked on the operating agreement that said five years after we split from eBay, five years, so there's still another two and a half years to go, that eBay would be able to get another payment processor, which, by the way, every marketplace in the world has at least two, if nothing else, for backup. And that also PayPal would then be freed to work with any marketplace in the world, and we have restrictions on us today. And so really for us, this was a well-known event in all of our numbers, in all in of all our medium-term guidance. Because I was quite shocked. Because I said, yeah. all right, this is the opportunity. Everyone knew this was numbers. I was surprised that it could go out to 2023. Yeah. I, did, I was shocked to believe that someone would choose an unbranded un, uh, Brand X versus branded that they've been using for years. And I maybe I said, I'm going to see Dan and ask him why my logic is faulty. Because I don't think it is. No, that's right. There is really no discernible effect as a result of what we announced with eBay on the long-term growth profile of PayPal. And we've talked about that. And I think the market now, there are some salacious headlines that came out, but I think the market now is coming and adjusting to that and understanding exactly that. Well, they also might know that you have about 13 billion when secretly close to be able to buy. You've been a great steward of your cap, capital. Don't know what you can do, but I know that you could buy back more than, you could buy back 15% of the company if you wanted to. Yeah, well, think about it. We have 7 billion in cash on our balance sheet right now, no debt. We've got $6 billion coming from our asset light sale, and we told the street we were going to do $4.5 billion of free cash flow this year alone. So anyway you add that up, we'll have $15 billion plus of cash at the end of the year, and there are a lot of things you can do with that. All right, and time left, uh, we've got to talk about this new generation of younger people, which gets bigger and bigger. They don't have as much money as when many of us got out of college. Yep. It's a sharing economy. When I talk to my daughter why she uses Venmo, it's because they're out as a group. No one fights for the check, Dan. Yeah, they all split it. They all split it. Yeah. And, they, and Venmo's their way. And it's, I, I think for someone my age, I can't figure out what the heck do they use Venmo for. It's because they share everything because they don't have the money we had. Yeah. I think there are a couple of things that are really interesting about the millennial generation. First of all, they think about you know, equality in, in different ways, right? Everyone is the same. Everyone is uh, equal. Right. So that sharing happens. They're a part of social networks right now. So their friends are much more important. Experiences are much more important. And the way that they think about technology is very different. So 
they split everything naturally through their mobile phone. And the difference between their public persona and their private persona is very blurred plus they, as they, well. Plus they, they don't trust the banks. Well, they grew up in a generation where there was a recession, the Great Recession that happened. And so they want to really take care of their money. They don't want to go into debt. They think a lot about their financial health, a lot about savings. It's very important to them that they have their own independence. And these apps like Venmo are incredibly powerful in helping and empowering them to take care of their financial health. And that's why I look, I don't, nothing against MasterCard and Visa. They're still great growth stocks, but the growth stock of the future is yours. Well, that's very kind of you to say. We're great partners with the whole ecosystem, but I do feel like the digitization of payments is a tailwind for all of us and is going to explode well, as we I look forward. The, t- the big tailwind is for PayPal. Dan Schulman, President and CEO, PayPal, PYPL. Thanks for doing great for your shareholders. Thank you so much, Jim. Appreciate it. so happens that I came out here to San Francisco right when you needed to start circling the wagons around the technology stocks, as many of the non-semiconductor related equities are seemingly immune to the trade war worries that people keep freaking out about. Ooh, but the semiconductors, ouch. Not every red hot tech stock, though, is based out here in Silicon Valley. Consider the nearly miraculous comeback of Akamai Technologies. Remember AKAM, a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based company that's the world's largest cloud-based content delivery platform. Akamai, what a blast from the past. When we first went on the air 13 years ago, I always liked to talk about these guys as the operators of the fast lane on the information superhighway, with especially of smooth streaming and secure video. But after really roaring from 2011 to 2015, Akamai's stock went out of style on the Wall Street fashion show. It was written off and if not left for dead, at least abandoned by the side of the road, incapable of mounting a comeback. Suddenly, though, this thing is flying. It's now up 64% from its lows just last August. And while there are a few reasons for Akamai's recent strength, the main one is that an activist got involved last December. Paul Singer's Elliott Management, and Akamai has embraced their ideas almost lock, stock, and barrel. But before we talk about the turn here, you need to understand why Akamai was down in the dumps in the first place. After roaring higher year after year, Akamai ran headfirst into a wall in 2015. The reason? For ages, if you wanted to deliver high-speed content over the web to a large number of users, these guys had the best technology bar none. But then some of the company's largest media customers, here we're thinking about Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Netflix, most of all, started duplicating Akamai's technology in-house. Who needs Akamai's fast lane if you can build your own? The loss of business from these huge clients, or even in some cases merely the reduction in business, changed the story practically overnight. In 2014, Akamai was a fabulous double-digit grower. Sales had increased by 24%. By 2015, those numbers downshifted dramatically to just under 12%. And for the last couple of years, it's been more like 6 or 7% with shrinking gross margins. Basically, Akamai, let's say it was a momentum stock that lost its momentum. And whenever that happens, the results are ugly. The stock plunged from the mid-70s at its peak in 2015 to the mid-40s at its lows the next year as the growth guys sold. The value guys didn't see much value. Since then, though, Akamai's made a stunning comeback. So the question is, how did they do it so you know how to spot these? Okay, activists got involved in December, but I don't think Elliott Management would have wanted anything to do with Akamai if the business hadn't already started showing some light. 
By last summer, Akamai had gotten over the loss of its huge clients. Instead, the company was starting to benefit from a major change in the media landscape. Even a few years ago, there simply weren't that many content providers investing heavily in streaming. It just wasn't a major part of the business model, unless you were a Netflix or an Amazon or Hulu, really just starting from scratch on the web. Well, now that's changed completely. And while the big boys can build out their own content delivery networks that are nearly as good as Akamai's, the smaller media players that are migrating the web, they really can't afford it. They don't want to. We've seen so many entertainment companies embrace this new business model, what's known as over the top, where they bypass the cable providers and sell you a subscription so you can watch their content directly over the Internet. Oh, we talked about WWE. They're doing it. Disney's doing it. Bam Tech. And with ESPN, CBS is doing it. And eventually, I suspect a lot more media companies will follow in their footsteps. Akamai is still the market leader in content delivery. They still have the best technology, and they're probably the best way to play the expansion of this new over-the-top entertainment business. Plus, they've expanded into red-hot new areas like cloud security, and even the ailing media division has indeed started to turn around. And sure enough, Akamai had already reported a very strong quarter before the activists got involved. With that springboard, along comes Elliott Management. In December, the activist firm announced that it acquired a 6.5% stake in Akamai. Elliott's thesis was that the stock had become too cheap given the scale of the opportunity. Smart. And they also figured they could push management to make the business more efficient, possibly explore strategic alternatives, which is Wall Street speak for put the company up for sale if necessary. Elliott has a terrific track record when it comes to unlocking value or when it comes to cutting costs, frankly. So suddenly it seemed like all sorts of skeptical analysts were pushing the stock. And they were right. In mid-January, we learned that Akamai had hired bankers to explore strategic alternatives, including putting the company up for sale. Company delivered then some very strong numbers in early February when the market was selling off hard. The web division grew at a 17% clip. Security grew at 32%. And while media was still down, Akamai's media traffic accelerated. Management was very bullish about the future and predicted a return to media revenue growth this year. More importantly, the cost cuts spurred on by Elliott are making a huge difference. It's not run much more like a business, less like an academy. That may be the tip of the iceberg. Last Thursday, Akamai agreed to appoint two independent directors to its board at Elliott's insistence. Tom Kilalea, he's a former Amazon executive. Pretty good ad. The board created a financial operating committee to identify areas where the company can itself become more efficient. Long term, they think they can get Akamai's operating margins up to 30 percent by 2020. Hey, that would be 500 basis points higher than they were back in the good old days of 2014. That would be stellar. Plus, Akamai added 417 million to its buyback. They generate a lot of cash. That brings its total to 750 million, which they plan to use all, all by the end of this year. At that time, they accounted for uh, 6.3% of the share cap. Yeah, that is a real buyback. That's not a sham or an in-name buyback, my view. Akamai has some extremely valuable assets, and Elliott will either keep helping bring out the value of the enterprise, and if that value peaks or it stalls, then I think the company will be put up for sale. The bottom line, the only thing better than a turnaround is a turnaround that's getting juiced with steroids by a very smart activist firm. And that's what's happening to Akamai. And it's why I like the stock right here, especially since it pulled back a few points from its highs last week, giving you an excellent entry point to do some buying. Let's take calls. Let's go to Matt in Minnesota. Matt. Hey, Jim. Here's How are you, Matt? I'm calling Booyah to you. And congratulations excellent. on your 13th anniversary. Thank you. So my question today is OLED. After seeing the huge drop of off its all-time high of $209 around the time of the VIX fell off, I decided to open a position there. And then fast forward to the time of their Q4 earnings report, which beat analyst expectations, but perhaps was poorly worded with a, quote, expected drop in 2018 revenue. The stock took another right. huge hit. Yeah. 
However, this was around the same time when they renewed their contract with Samsung, their largest customer, for the next five years. Okay. So what I want to know is, those slightly weaker 2018 sales projected justify a near $4 billion drop in valuation from the all-time high. My answer is yes, because you cannot, have, you cannot have a down year for a, for a growth stock and expect that that stock can mount a comeback. So I'm going to say, even though I believe in OLED technology, the better way to play it by far is applied materials. Mike in Maryland. Mike. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Kramerica. Booyah. All right. My question regards Aquantia. Recent uh, news reports, late January, uh, partnership with NVIDIA Drive Platform, uh, offering uh, multi-gig Ethernet capabilities. Uh, what do you think, Jim? Is I think it's real good, but it's up 50%. You know what? I actually prefer their partner, NVIDIA. And you know how, I, I, how much I believe in NVIDIA? I name my dog after the stock. All right, what do you do when you have immunity to a trade war, a strong comeback in the back of a smart actor's firm? Well, you, you get Akamai and you get a buy. Much more mad money. Hit. The new CEO of SoFi, mad, mad money fave Anthony Noto, has steered the company out of a crisis. Tonight, I'm talking with him about what's ahead for one of the hottest but private financial tech companies. Then, lucky number 13, I'm celebrating my anniversary with you, Cray Marica, after tough day for the averages. I'll tell you why it's even more important than ever to roll up your sleeves and get ready to learn. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. If you want to understand where an industry is headed, you need to know what the game-changing privately held players are up to. Companies like SoFi, which has been revolutionizing the lending business, offering student loan financing mortgages, personal loans, even asset management and insurance via the web with a major social networking component. Now, earlier today, we got a chance to check in with Anthony Noto, a longtime friend of the show and former Twitter chief operating officer who took over as CEO of SoFi earlier this month. Take a look. All right, Anthony, I've known you for a long time. Why SoFi? You can work anywhere, at any company. Your success is amazing, but you're going to a place that I can only describe as hashtag me too hotbed. So uh, first thing I'd say, Jim, is congratulations. This is your 13th anniversary for Mad Money. <laughs> You've what, been with us the whole way, so thank what, you. What, what a run. Uh, thank you. I couldn't be more excited about being at SoFi. I had an opportunity to go and meet our employees around the country. I'll be doing that over the next couple of weeks. Right. The passion they have for the business, the success the business had, is, is really a heartwarming, quite frankly. Um, but why SoFi? We have an opportunity to build the next great financial institution. We want to serve consumers in a way they haven't been served in 30 years and really revolutionize the industry in many of the ways that we've seen large tech platforms do in retail and large tech platforms do in travel and ultimately allowing people to achieve their financial objectives and reach financial independence. So do you think it, there is a kind of a media post-apocalypse feel that the media may be exaggeration. You've been there for a couple weeks and that the organization still is pretty sad. What I'd say is this. The business has been incredibly strong. It hasn't missed a beat. 2017 was a great year for the company. Um, they did $12.9 billion of, 
of loan volume and financing, which is a remarkable number, up more than 60 percent. 2018 is off to a very strong start. So I, I couldn't be more positive about the opportunity in front of us um, and to really build this great next financial institution for today's generation that really hasn't had an innovative product in financial services across a broad spectrum, spectrum of things that you could do online. Well, you mentioned uh, different verticals that have worked, like retail. When we would speak to your predecessor, I was conscious that he married I call it data with dating, that he somehow managed to merge those two to come up with the ideal customers who did a great job uh, paying back. Is that how you see it still? Well, I, I want to start with a couple of sort of important strengths. Number one is we have a brand that people are passionate about. When I first heard about this opportunity, I went on Twitter and did a search on the SoFi brand, and I was blown away by the passionate um, consumers that were so thankful for the way the brand and the business had impacted their lives like no other company. And that's why we have an opportunity to help people get to financial independence, which is very rewarding. But in order for us to win, we have to do three things. First, we have to have the best selection. And not just selection of each product, but variations of those products. Second, we have to provide unmatched convenience. Anytime, anywhere, and any device, you should be able to access all of your financial information, do any activity that you want across the broad spectrum of products that will launch over time. And then last, we have to have the fastest speed. People need to be able to apply the fastest, get approved the fastest, get access to their money the fastest. They should be able to withdraw their money the fastest, pay somebody the fastest, invest in stocks the fastest. So those three things are key differentiators, but one important thing is that we're building a membership base. And the SoFi membership base will be a key advantage for us And that when you do something with us in financial services, we're gonna to continue to um, facilitate our relationship through things like professional networking, mm -hmm career advice, financial advice, live financial advice, so that you can make the best decisions on your path to achieve your financial goal. Can you still forbear when someone loses a job, or is that too difficult for a company that may want to access the public markets through stock one day and has to show, well, wait a second, we do have loans that were, uh, that are not performing? We absolutely can. Our members' interests come first, and if we take care of our members, they'll take care of our interests as well. And so we put them at the center of everything we're doing, whether it's new products or services, or trying to build better membership benefits. And so we want to be their partner over the long term so that they have the flexibility in different times, maybe different times of right. financial stress or times of opportunity, to take advantage of the services that we provide. And if someone does lose a job, we want to help them find that next job. And we've done a lot in the career services side of the equation. Are you still going for that customer? Why? Your predecessor, I loved what he would talk about it. They look like bad credit risk because they came. I, look, I came out of Harvard Law and I owed a ton. OK, and I couldn't get a credit card, but I felt I was bankable. And what I always felt if, if SoFi were around, that would have been the natural to go to because they might have just said, hey, look, he, he's done some good things. Yeah. There's a number of important variables that we use to decide when to improve individuals for loans. We do 100% identity verification, 100% of income verification. We underwrite and improve based on actual income as well as the credit profile of the individual. So we're going after a very attractive borrower based on factors that others haven't used historically. And we're using, obviously, data to reinforce that decision. And it's a constantly improving process. So it's allowed us to really deliver great value put to not only our members, but also to investors in our securitizations. You're uh, one of your uh, predecessor companies that you worked at, Goldman Sachs, has an outfit called Marcus. Uh, why wouldn't Marcus, through Goldman, just buy SoFi before it comes public? 
You know, we're focused on building this great next generation financial services platform and, and focused on serving our members better than anyone else. We have a very aggressive and ambitious agenda to launch a number of products this year and, and into 2019. And so that's what we'll continue to focus on to build value for shareholders. I'm worried about your cost of acquisition, which is high. You worked at the NFL at one point. You have a Super Bowl ad. Is that the right way to spend your money? Jim, what I'd say is holistically, the team has done an incredible job of building a next generation brand that stands for financial services. I was blown away by how passionate people are on Twitter about the brand. That happens from smart investing. And they've okay. balanced investing versus growth. Um, $12.9 billion of, of loan financing last year, up more than 60%, That's a significant nice. amount of revenue and gap profitable with very high EBITDA margins. So the team has struck the right balance between investing for the long term and for growth. And we need to continue to do that and accelerate our pace of innovation to capture the opportunity. I've known you long enough to know that you seem to be the ideal person to come in. West Point, Goldman Sachs, NFL, Twitter. Could you please advise people who are coming into these situations, of which there are far too many, hashtag me too, what's the way to go about it? Culture is critically important to a company. I have worked at uh, corporations where culture was a key differentiator and a key element of success. The great news is when I got to SoFi, the team had already made a commitment to improving the culture, started an initiative called One SoFi that's really about welcoming anyone and making anyone feel comfortable working there. Um, we're committed to having the best culture in the world. We've just started over the last couple of months. I'm privileged to join that team and help build the culture. But essentially, a leader and his team are responsible for setting the tone and the way that we're going to work. And SoFi and I are committed to making sure that we build the world's best culture and to become a key differentiator for us. Well, I know you sure did help the Twitter culture, and I think you're going to do a great job at SoFi. It's private. I can say that when you're public. I will have to be a little bit tougher. That's Anthony Nero. He is SoFi CEO, and congratulations on the job. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate Absolutely. it. It is time, and it's time for the light round. Curtis and Red's Red Freckles, one of those teams that's going to be just playing under the court. They're going to stand for the money and play themselves. And then the lightning round for the 13th year is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the light round. Curtis, let's start with Art in California. Art. Yes, Mr. Kramer. Hi. I read your book, Bad Money. Wonderful book. Thank you. Uh, my my Merck and Company stock is losing money. Is Merck a buy, hold, or sell? Uh, not a buyer of Merck here, even though I do like that yield. I prefer Lily or, more importantly, Abbott Labs. Holding FractionLawrence club members. Larry in Florida. Larry. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Uh, Jim, I worked 44 years in the oil industry, and 25, 30 years ago, it was easy to figure out the oil industry, but not now. I wondered where you thought Phillips 66 stock would go They and are why. incredibly well run. That stock can go higher. I have to tell you, they've created real value there. Stick with it. Let's go to Beth, my home state, New Jersey. Beth! Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I've been, some, I've been reading some great reports on Five Below, and I wanted your insight on what the future looks like for this stock, if it's worth investing. I echo those great reports. I have to tell you, this is a Philadelphia outfit. I've always believed in it, and now it's finally accelerating. It owns the business. Let's go to Charles in California. Charles! Jim, how are you doing today? I am having just a simply fantastic day. How about you? Oh, really good, thank you. Better now that I'm talking to you. Oh, hey, quick, same. Quick two-part question about CentOS. Did they re- Okay. Well, uh, I'll give you one-part answer that alleged two-part question. Cintas is one of my absolute favorites. 
Why? Because small business uniforms growth both business and they're terrific operators. Let's go to Connor in Louisiana. Connor. Jim, booyah. You're speaking to Connor Jones from Baton Rouge. I'm 22, a grad student at LSU. I've got a question about GSP Capital with Spotify and Dropbox going public later this month, supposedly. Well, I can tell you is we still are pulling in the younger people, and I am so thrilled, but I don't have an answer to that question. It's better to tell someone from Baton Rouge that I don't know the answer than to try to cuff it. And, oh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Hey, I'm hey, Kramer. Kramer. Welcome, Welcome to Mad, to Mad Money. Money. Other people, Other people want to make friends. Make fr- I'm just trying I'm just to make trying you some to money. Money, money. Hey, hey I'm, I'm Kramer. 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 Welcome, Welcome to Mad, Mad Money. Money. Hey, I'm going to hurl. Welcome to Mad Money 101. Are you ready? Ski study! Tonight, Mad Money is in the heart of steel country. It's the sound of American industry roaring back to life. It should be music to your ears. That story is far from over. Let's take a call. Go to Tim in California. Tim. This is Tim Cook at Apple, and I want to congratulate you on 10 great years of Mad Money. We love the fact that you highlight innovation as a centerpiece of your show. Jim Cramer had this to say about the economy. He's a prophet. And he's nuts! They're nuts! They know nothing! They know nothing! They know nothing! Don't you think you were too calm? Whatever money you may need for the next five years, please take it out of the stock market right now. That was a call that should have wrecked my career. And it would have if the market had gone up. Well, I stuck my neck out and did it and saved a lot of people money. He was right. At that point, we were at the beginning of this great panic. Please welcome from Mad Money, stock guru, Mad Money, best-selling author, the very unstable Jim Cramer. My first question is, we've never discussed this, what's wrong with you? Booyah! Booyah. Booyah. Mad Money's Jim Cramer. Damn Cramer! <laughs> Don't buy! Don't buy. Jim Cramer hosts Mad Money on this network. What is CNBC? Hello, fellow Facebookers. I'm here to do one thing. Get you more friends. Let me show you the new Stark Industries business plan. I'm grounded and spend all day listening to my dad yell at Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Oh, yeah, it's nothing. I was a guest on Mad Money last night. What's happening? It's one of you, Jim Cramer! It's amazing that they're giving me this opportunity still. Every day I say, I can't believe I got my own show. 13 years ago, Lucky 13, we started Mad Money, a show dedicated to helping you to become a better investor. We chose to do so in a new way. We broke the rules of television and went interactive, talking to you, the viewer, every night. The idea of a one-man show about business hosted by me of old people seemed insane. Mad even, at least when we started. But here we are 13 years later, still going strong. But I'm not here tonight to celebrate my own success. No, we want to celebrate your success in profiting from our vision. 
The reason we have a 13th anniversary, the reason we have any anniversary is that you supported us. You cheered us and informed us about what you need to take control of your finances. We're still in the air because of you. Well, you and the coveted baby demographic that loves the animal sound effects I always pound away at. You started with us in the halcyon days of economic expansion. You stuck with us during a horrendous downturn, the worst since the Great Depression. You fought with us to get back to even. You stayed with us as the market soared, and we urged you to stay in when so many other people told you to get out, to own bonds, stay in cash, made you almost no money rather than stocks that made you fortunes. We do our best to keep you in the game every day, including tough days like this one. In all honesty, your questions and enthusiasm for stocks are the reason I believe that individual investors, regular people with no background in the industry, have what it takes to manage their own money, even as so many supposed experts claim it's impossible. Most important, you embolden us to keep going, and we owe our 13 years of success to you. So you have my sincere thanks for giving me the chance to help you be a better steward of your money. Believe me, as long as you keep watching and the network doesn't hold me out in a studio in a straitjacket, I'll keep coming out here to entertain you and educate you and hopefully make you a better investor. After 13 years, keep sticking with Crane. First, thank you, CNBC, for allowing us to be on for 13 years so we can help educate and teach And thank you, viewers, for giving us the confidence and for giving us your endorsement to be able to stay on this long. Second, congratulations to my old partner, Larry Kudlow. Before we had this show, we had Kudlow and Kramer. Why was Kudlow's name first? We did a coin flip, and it went his way. But you know what? He is first in our minds at CNBC and our hearts for telling his story the way he does. And now he's going to be telling the president's story. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.